Welcome to All Along the Wasatch, a public affairs program produced by Bonneville Salt Lake City. If you would like to submit a request to be on the show, please email mparsons at ksl.com. Now, here's the host of All Along the Wasatch, Mike Parsons. My guests today are Johnita Emerson, who is the CEO, and Laurel Ingham, who is Development Director at 4th Street Clinic, and the website is 4thStreetClinic.org. Hello to both of you. Hello. Hello. Tell us a little bit about 4th Street Clinic. When did it start? Who started it? Why was it started? 4th Street Clinic has been um, around for over 30 years now, and it started as a small one-room clinic uh, that operated out of what was then Traveler's Aid, um, which is now known as the Road Home. Um, and it was a partnership between people in the community who were medical providers and hospitals to provide charity care, like free clinic services to individuals experiencing homelessness. Um, since then, we've grown into our new location, which located right on 400 West and 400 South. We have over uh, 80 staff uh, that we employ full-time. That includes seven physicians, uh, nurse practitioners, um, and we provide integrated medical services. Uh, so that includes primary care, behavioral health, dental, pharmacy, case management, and other supported services. Fourth Street is a federally qualified community health center, so that means our mission is to provide access to high-quality health care services to individuals who uh, historically have had a hard time uh, accessing care for various reasons, whether it be their underserved community or that they have had uh, trouble accessing affordable insurance for different reasons, or they're low-income and they just have trouble affording health care, which can be quite expensive in this country. Um, and we really love that about our mission. It's really um, central to what we do, and we want to make sure that everyone who needs access to care has the ability to access really high-quality services. I was reading through kind of the history of 4th Street Clinic on your website, and I thought it was really interesting that back in the mid-'80s, there were actually housing for a lot of people that can't afford afford housing now, but it was all torn down, and that sort of created the homeless problem that we still have today. I know there's not a lot of incentive for people to buy or to build low-income housing, but how do we how do we solve that? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a great question, and we really believe at 4th Street that housing and healthcare, that those two things go hand in hand. You can't um, be healthy if you don't have a home. It's incredibly difficult to be healthy if you don't have a home. Uh, and we know that that is really integral to being able for an individual to transition out of homelessness. So there are lots of community-wide efforts and policy efforts that go on in the state and nationally that can contribute to that. I think we see our role at the clinic as helping people transition into housing, making sure they have accesses to the services they need to maintain their housing and they can be stable. For an individual who's been homeless and living in an, in an encampment or in a shelter for many, many years, the transition into housing can be really challenging. There's a lot of guilt that goes along with it, getting housed when your um, friends maybe haven't been in that position. Um, and there's just a, a lot of transition there. And so we really see our role as being able to support an individual um, so that they can stay housed and to help them get stable enough um, to work with somebody to find housing. Question of developing housing and incentivizing housing. Those are great conversations. And we work really closely with you know the State Office of Homelessness um, and other community partners who are really focused on those. Those issues, but at Fourth Street, like our goal is really to to think about the person and make sure they mm -hmm. have the services they need to maintain their housing. So, Laurel, you're the development director, which means you get to think about how we pay for all the fun at Fourth Street Clinic. <laughs> it is that is true. I'm sure that running a <laughs> clinic like that with all of the different features you have is not cheap. Where does most of your funding come from? 
So we really look at our model, um, because we are a federally qualified health center, we really look at it a third, a third, and a third. So we'd get a third of our funding from the federal government. Um, I raise a third of it, and then a third of it is through earned income. So patients do have insurance or Medicaid reimbursement. So that is really our model that we have been, probably over the last five years, really solid at that third, third, and third. Mm -hmm. Who are some of your biggest supporters? Well, that's a great question. I mean, there are so many people. And to me, I feel like there is, you know, you're always going to have your large dollar donors, your $100,000, a couple hundred thousand dollar donors. Um, But for us, really, it's, you know, a $10 donation goes a long way. A $25 donation helps us provide a flu shot. So anybody in the community, in my opinion, um, giving a dollar is is an amazing donor. And let's talk about some of the myths surrounding homelessness. Uh, People who are homeless stay homeless for a long time. True or false? Well, mostly false. Talking about people, <laughs> I'm sure that there's no one size fits all. But, no but is that generally a myth all. that homeless people are homeless for long periods of time? I know some are. Some are, yeah, absolutely. Um, some are, but no. I think when you look at the data for the state, the data would suggest that many people are transitioning out of homelessness. You know, under 90 days, there are there is a population. Um, and that is a lot of the population that we work with at the clinic who um, have been homeless for many years or, or have qualified for that sort of more chronic homeless status, mm-hmm. right? So they've been living on the street for many years. So they've had multiple episodes of homelessness time and time again. But lots of people come into homelessness and are able with a little bit of support and some assistance with housing to get back on their feet, are able to transition into housing and remain housed and stay out of homelessness. And again, these are all generalizations, mm-hmm. but one of the other myths, most people that are homeless are single adults. I think we have a very diverse homeless community um, across the country and particularly here in Salt Lake City. So we see lots of homeless families. So I think homelessness looks really different depending on who you are and um, and your situation. And so we know there are lots of kiddos who are couch surfing or who maybe whose families are working. And so they're moving from grandma and grandpa's to aunts and uncles houses. Um, and that homeless population and those needs are very different than the individuals that um, maybe you see when you're driving into work that are right. camping along the side of the road. Um, yeah. And I think those folks that are couch surfing, if you will, so you're going from grandma to grandma or grandpa to grandpa or um, are really the invisible homeless, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. when you go into, you know, the high schools and, and you have folks, you know, at East High that people think, oh, there's nobody homeless here. You really have those what I would consider invisible homeless because they're not outwardly getting services. They're just trying to figure out where they can put a roof over their kid's house and send them to school. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of stigma that's associated with being homeless. And so I think that kind of also leads into that issue around like we do have a lot of invisible homeless. Whereas I think like when you ask me about homeless, I think about the population that we serve at the clinic, which tends to be more of the individuals who are living on the street or encampments who have been in a homeless resource center or emergency shelter for an elongated period of time. Um, And that tends to be the population that the clinic works with. And that's probably why these myths are out there, because we just base it on who we see. How about this one? The homeless are pretty much to blame for their own situation. Mm. That's a really hard one for me. It's actually one of my favorite interview questions. It's a really good way to kind of think about if someone's going to fit in with the mission of an organization, but to ask them what they think the reasons are that someone can become homeless. And I think 
the reality is is that any of us could become homeless at any time depending on which way the wind blows uh, for you. So um, we have a really expensive healthcare system. And so a family that is relatively stable but maybe has one individual who's the primary income earner, if that individual had a severe accident, if they got into a car accident and suddenly had an astronomical amount of medical debt, that family could end up mm-hmm. homeless so quickly. Um, and we see a lot of that in the homeless service system. We see lots of people who come in for various different reasons. So there are lots of reasons that contribute to homelessness. Um, very few of those reasons actually have anything to do with the individual. A lot of trauma that mm-hmm. the individual experienced as a child um, can lead to homelessness. So we know that individuals who have um, high levels of adverse events in their childhood, who have multiple adverse events in their childhood, are more likely to become homeless later on in their life. And we're talking about things that happen to a child before the age of 10. So mm-hmm. those aren't things they have any control over. Right. That's the environment you were born into, right? The support system you have in place, um, how you learn to cope and manage stress, which impacts your ability to then do well in school and do well in a job. And so they're just, there's so many things mm-hmm. that contribute to it. And very few of those things are things that we as individuals control. Right. I come from one of those typical gigantic Utah families. And so I look back over my life and there were times that I needed some help. Not everybody has that. Right. So if you don't have somebody to reach out to and say, hey, I'm in trouble, I need a little money. Social support is huge, right? Having that stability in your family, having a friendship network or something along those lines that can help you with that. Um, Having people who understand and are in a position to help. Yeah, and intergenerational poverty. I mean, it's really hard to climb out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, You look at just the social determinants of health, right, and trying to get access. So if you would live in a poor neighborhood, getting all of those things um, from housing to transportation to food, those all impact you, and that intergenerational poverty just cycles. How did COVID impact <laughs> your world? I would imagine in almost every single way. <laughs> Because COVID not only probably created more of a need, but it also made it harder for you to fulfill the need. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, COVID was a real curveball. Yeah. <laughs> um, COVID was, I mean, it's not, we're still feeling like, I mean, look, we still, still wear masks, it. right? So we're still in a mask situation right, at the clinic. Right, in a medical facility. Um, we barely just took our tents down in June. Um, I mean, we were really, we still are, you know, everybody comes in and they're masked. Everybody comes in and they're, you know, asked the questions about their respiratory illnesses. Um, if they have any respiratory illnesses, then we do, you know, segment them, you know, put them in a secure place where, you know, there's not people around. Um, I think for us, so there were obviously like everyone in healthcare had to adapt and kind of pivot and think about how to manage COVID and infectious disease and still provide services, especially for our patients who tend to, um, they're not really coming in for optional services, right? Like they're coming in for really urgent needs, things that have been pent up um, and can no longer wait. Uh, And so we didn't really see a decrease necessarily um, once all of the kind of stay home orders were in place. We didn't really see a decrease in people seeking care. We had to think about how we provided that care differently, how we would keep staff safe, and how we would keep other patients safe. And so I think the biggest thing for COVID for us was the amount of strain it put on our staff across 
all levels of the organization, from administration to your front desk staff, because like Laurel said, you know, we have to screen everybody who's coming in through the front door. And if you have respiratory symptoms, now you have to go wait to a different place. So now we need a different check-in registration process for those folks who have respiratory conditions. And then we maintain our regular clinic flow for, you know, just the folks that are coming in um, seeking care. So we kind of had to develop like dual tracks across the organization. And for us, we were a small organization in 2020. We only had about 50 um, staff that worked for the clinic. So being able to figure out how to do all of that um, really put an enormous strain on staff. And then we had to maintain that for such a long period of time. And did COVID increase our homeless numbers? Yeah, we definitely saw increases in the number of individuals seeking shelter um, and seeking services um, that were homeless, for sure. Um, I think is all of that. And we're still seeing that, right? Because it's still kind of playing its way out um, with the economy and with the housing market, um, which has gotten just like completely insane. Um, And so we are still seeing some of that increase trickle through. My guests today are Johnita Emerson, who is the CEO, and Laurel Ingham, who is Development Director at 4th Street Clinic. And the website is 4th Street Clinic. Clinic.org. So, Laurel, I know you participate in Food Truck Face-Off every year. We do. What other events do you participate in? Do you have any other fundraising events? You know, our biggest one, Mike, is our year-end, our Give One Race 2, that starts December 1, and we really right now are working on getting sponsors so that everybody that donates a dollar in December that is matched. So that brings in, last year we brought in $1.2 million oh, wow. in December. So it's a big number that we look at. So that is really, it's a virtual event. So there isn't anything that people need to go to or buy tickets to. Um, that's what we kind of gear up to. But I, you know, we, on our way over here, we were talking. The other thing that is really helpful is if people jump online and become a sustaining donor. So mm-hmm. they give that $10 a month, right? So maybe at the end of the year, you're like, oh, I wish I could give $100. Well, if you spread it out right. over 12 months, you actually give $120 giving $10 yeah. a month. So jumping online and becoming a sustaining donor for us is huge. Um, but that's our big one. That's kind of my, that kind of gobbles up my fourth quarter. Yeah. I And I know that you mentioned all the different services you provide, but that was something I didn't know about 4th Street Clinic until I got to know Laurel a little bit was, I thought it was just medical care, but you do so much more than that. And you mentioned that, but talk a little bit more about that, all yeah. the different things you provide. Our patients really have complex needs, and our goal is to try and provide as much support to meet those needs as we can in one location. Um, So we have uh, our medical team, like you said, um, which consists of primary care, mostly family practice physicians. That looks like just what you would do when you take your kid in for a well check or if you go to see your primary care doctor on a regular basis. Um, But in addition to that, we have um, licensed clinical social workers and other behavioral health specialists that work on site. We do an integrated care model. So we recognize that our patients have a lot of behavioral health needs. And so every time you meet with a primary care physician, you'll also see your behavioral health Mm -hmm. consultant to help work on a lot of different things. And it could be working on maybe addressing issues around mental illness or substance use disorder, but it could also just be working on addressing your chronic diabetes and thinking about why are you having a hard time taking your insulin or what are some small life changes that we could do. Um, So we have our behavioral health staff, which does both substance use disorder counseling. They do the brief interventions with the primary care team, and then we have mental health staff as well who work with individuals with um, mental illness, and we can provide access to medication to help with that. We have a dental clinic uh, and a dental hygienist who's part of that clinic. So again, looks just like what you would see when you go to your dentist. We can do dentures, roots, um, root canals, extractions, uh, regular oral hygiene cleanings, um, all of that stuff is provided on site. We have a pharmacy as well. Um, 
And our pharmacy is amazing. It's the most amazing group of pharmacists and farm techs you'll ever meet in your entire life. They do so much for our patients, um, way more than you would actually get in your retail pharmacy. <laughs> so, uh, um, And then we have case management services to help people if they need help getting their identification so that they can apply for housing. Um, if they need birth certificates, stuff like that, they can work with them on that. They can also work with them on other types of goals that they might have involving um, completing job applications helping them understand transportation so they know how to navigate around. We have care coordinators who help with um, appointments that happen outside of the clinic. So for example, if you come in and our physician thinks you need an MRI, they'll schedule the MRI for you. They'll make sure you have transportation to get there. They'll help you get there make sh- and then they'll get the records back from the physician office so that it can come back to our primary care provider and schedule you in for follow-up and you can kind of keep going. So we try and help them with that continuity of care. And then we have a couple of components that operate outside of clinic, which are our mobile medical bus, which is a 42-foot RV that goes around to each of the homeless resource centers and a bunch of other sites in the community. It has three exams on it um, and has a provider that's assigned to it. And so it goes out and it provides primary care um, out in uh, the community. And then we have our street medicine team. Wow. Um, it's like a little city there in the corner. Like <laughs> yeah, um, our street medicine team, and they really are kind of geared to go into encampments and work with the unsheltered population. They do a lot of wound care, um, a lot of just engagement and getting people more comfortable with coming in to seek longer-term services, but they can also take medications out with them. Um, they can do antibiotics in the field. Um, and so we really try and meet our patients where they're at, and then we also really recognize there are a lot of barriers to access and care for them. So we try and bring that all um, in-house when possible. And I didn't even talk about specialty services yet. <laughs> no, she so. didn't. We have a lot of volunteer <laughs> docs that provide specialty care. So, you know, your ophthalmology, your gynecology, your neurology, all of those. We have a lot of ologies in our scope. Um, it's, I'll just leave it at that. There's a lot of ologies for, you know, uh, patients that have been um, seen at the clinic before. Yeah. Again, recognizing like that transportation can be a huge barrier and just walking into another clinic and not feeling comfortable in that space can be a disincentive to accessing care. So we try and bring it to them. How many people do you serve in a year? We serve usually around 5,000 individuals. We did see a reduction in our numbers during COVID as people stopped seeking care a little bit. And the type of visits that we were doing were more focused on um, vaccines, which don't fall into our patient counts for complicated reasons that have to do with the federal government. <laughs> All right. Uh, Super complicated. We I know that. we have this UDS number, and I'm always like, but that really that is the real number. That is actually an underrepresentation of <laughs> gotcha. what we do. We should okay. have a different number. But yeah, so we serve about 5,000 individuals on an annual basis. And I saw on your website that you specifically kind of talked about what LGBTQIA plus resources you offer in the community. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we know that... Um, homeless youth and specifically individuals who identify as LGBTQ, um, that the rates of homelessness for that population is higher. And so we really, for all of our patients, but particularly for those patients, we want to be able to provide a safe space um, where they can access care. We work really closely with other community partners um, throughout the community who specialize in some more advanced services for that population. Um, But our goal is to provide a safe space um, and to make sure that everyone who comes in feels like they can be themselves. And I've noticed as I interview nonprofits in Utah, there's a real community and a support system where it's not competitive, it's it's more supportive. What are some of the other organizations you partner with? Oh my gosh, we so many. With a lot. <laughs> yeah, we've truly believed that um, 
the, the most effective way to serve the community is to do it through partnerships. And we have things we're really good at, and then we have things that we really um, don't have any experience. Yeah, in. We, we stay in our lane. We yeah. try. And we we stay definitely in lane, stay in our lane, right? right? And I think um, I think QI is a really good example yeah, of we that. St- <laughs> so, yeah. so during COVID, we took over quarantine and isolation from Salt Lake County as they were scaling that back. We'd never run a twenty four seven facility uh. before, and that was really hard uh. for us, really hard. And so we transitioned out of that by partnering with another organization mm. um, who does have experience in 24-7 kind of facility operation type stuff. Um, and we just do the medical services, okay. which is what we're good at. Right. So It's important to recognize that. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed um, a couple of people from the in-between and they talked about how they work with, with yes. you guys. Yep. Yeah. So the in-between is one of our partners. Um, we partner really closely with the Road Home. Um, which runs several of the resource centers. Um, EOA, Catholic Community Services. I mean, we partner, I mean, the Salt Lake County, Salt Lake City. I mean, there's, I mean, uh, YWCA, First Step Step House. House. I mean, our list is quite, University of Utah. I mean, we have so many students that uh, come and do some internships with us through through the University of Utah, the medical students. We have nursing students. um, We have pharmacy students that come through. So that's a whole other piece that we didn't even talk about are the number of students that are coming through and learning at Mm. our clinic Um, because that's – and we're sought after. I mean, I probably get – so Run request a week for some for a nurse practitioner that wants to come and do a rotation. What a wonderful problem to yeah. have. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you feel badly because you're like, oh, we don't, you know, like we I can't anymore. Yeah, we can maybe see you in 2025, and you're uh, going to be done wow. in 2025. So it's a good problem to have. But we are definitely sought after, and um, I always believe if you can work at Fourth Street Clinic, you can you can work anywhere. Yeah. And every nonprofit has a board of directors, but you also have something called a consumer advisory board. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. that I was reading about that on the website, and I think it's such a cool idea. Yeah. So our consumer advisory board is made up of current patients and former patients. Um, it meets monthly, and it has two members of our board of directors who sits on it, as well as myself and our behavioral health director. So that group is set up specifically to provide direct feedback to health center leadership on the services we're providing, what we're doing well, what we're not doing well, um, how we can improve gaps. Um, and it's a really phenomenal group of individuals, uh, and it's a lot of fun to work with them. And they have provided some really amazing feedback to us that has helped helped us make some really significant improvements in our waiting room um, over the last couple of years, which has been a real sticky point uh, for us. So we do patient satisfaction surveys um, twice a year. Um, We kind of consistently get pretty negative feedback about our waiting room Mm. environment from patients. And so it's been a big project that the clinic has been focused on. But um, I I know that's my least favorite part of going to any medical. Right. Exactly. (laughs) You're going to have to wait. And our patients can wait for a long time because we do run mostly on like an urgent care type of model. Um, So a lot of our services are done on a walk-in basis and we see individuals based off of the, um, I'm going to say acuity, which is a medical word, um, but like the severeness of their illness. Like a triage kind yeah, of thing. Like yeah, like a triage. Exactly. Triaged. Everyone is triage. So yeah, our patients can wait a long time. So CAB, that's how we refer to our consumer advisory board, um, has provided a lot of feedback on ways we can make some minor improvements in the waiting room. So um, adding a whiteboard uh, so that when patients walk in, they can see who's on the schedule for the day. Oh. And if their doctor's not there, they can choose to come back a different day. Or if they come in and they see, oh, there's only one provider that's here today, the wait's going to be long. I uh. can choose to come back a different day. We also put the schedule for the day up in terms of like if there are group classes or things. So just some little things to improve patient communication, which at my level as the CEO, I 
probably would never have thought of. Um, but because they're in there every day and uh, and they have that experience and that lived experience, it's invaluable. Cab is invaluable. Last question. Where do you see 4th Street Clinic five to ten years from now? We have a pretty aggressive strategic plan. Maybe aggressive is not the right word, but, I mean, we have a very um, – it's lofty. Lofty, it's... visionary. I mean, everyone probably thinks their strategic plan is optimistic. visionary. Optimistic. Optimistic. No, no. we're going to do it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're going to do it. I mean, we have a big strategic plan. Challenging. Challenging uh, strategic plan that is really geared towards growth. So our goal is to be able to serve more individuals than we are currently serving and to be able to do that in a team-based care model that allows everybody in the organization to really operate at the highest level of their licensure. So, you know, having a care team that ensures that my medical doctor, when they go in the room, isn't having to get diverted by the fact that our patients need socks and shoes and various Mm -hmm. things. They can really just focus on the problem um, that they need to focus on with their degree and their licensure. Um, We want to be out in the community as much as we can, and we want to be a partner that people look to to choose to work with. We want to be a leader in health equity. We know equity is so important um, for our population. And so for us, how we define that, that means that our staff look like our patients, that we're addressing the multiple different social determinants of health that drive outcomes, because we know that that is the largest driver of health outcomes, um, and that our board also looks like our patients. Mm. And so that we really have that um, inclusion and equity throughout the whole organization across the board. Um and that we are a place that people want to work. So mm. uh, I hear all the time, I came from my hiring managers, I can't compete with the University of Utah. They pay more. Their benefits are better. But I think there are other things that we can offer as an organization. We can offer a culture that makes people feel like they belong and included and welcome, um, that they feel like they have a purpose when they come to work and that they can be really engaged and have some autonomy. Um, and so that's kind of the future that we see for the clinic. And then we also have to make it all sustainable. Right. Got to yeah. pay for all of it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's you know, you've got to look at all the different revenue streams. You've got to look at our, you know, our federal funds. We've got to look at look at all of that to make it make sure that we have that stability because you don't want to get people in there and then be like, oh, we don't have the funding to do that. So right, yeah. that is definitely, yeah. we have to it's definitely building mark. in a sustainable, responsible way. Makes sense. Yeah. We'll have you back and see how you're doing. Oh, we're going to crush it. <laughs> we're going <All> right. <laughs> to It's going to be my swan song, and we're going to crush it. We might build a new building, too. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, we will definitely have to have you back to talk more, because I feel like we just scratched the surface. Johnita Emerson, who is CEO, Laurel Ingham, at 4th Street <laughs> Clinic, and the website to find out more about all of the wonderful things they're doing is 4thstreetclinic.org. Thank you both so much. Thank you Thank for you. having us. Thank you for listening to All Along the Wasatch with Mike Parsons. If you would like to submit a request to be a guest on the show, please email mparsons at ksl.com. That's mparsons at ksl.com. 